Hello, and welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast, brought to you by ABI Wellness. This series features renowned experts on brain injury, brain health, and rehabilitation. Be sure to visit abiwellness.com for more resources. All right, welcome back to the Brain Mastery Podcast. Today's episode, we're going to be getting into a little bit about innovation, a little bit about influencing action, looking at best ways to help to further inform actual translation of research into practice, which is a very you know exciting topic to get into. Today's guest is a, a really a, a good man that I've full disclosure known for a few years. He's doing really important work with Praxis Spinal Cord Institute. He is the CEO of that organization. He's a very curious, inquisitive mind. Something that I really, you know, admire about him, and I try to kind of pick up from him and learn from him. He's very good at at pattern recognition, about understanding where there might be a challenge, and helping to connect people that might be able to help to inform a better question around that challenge. So I'm excited to have him with us today. So welcome to the podcast, Bill Grable. Thanks so much, Mark. It's a real pleasure to be here today. Yeah, well, it's uh, the pleasure's mine and. You know, uh, Bill is also a former resident of, or a current, I think, resident of Richmond. Is that true? Still in Richmond? Yeah, still, still in Richmond. Yeah, still yeah. love it. And I grew up in Richmond. So, and then we also share, you know, um, hockey coaches in the past, but I'm still, I think I'm working my way out of that role, hopefully this year. We'll see. <laughs> But inevitably, I still end up as a safety person regardless anyway. So it gives us a good seat, I guess. It sure does. And, and you know, if you don't mind, hockey is a lifestyle. It's great. If you have kids involved and, and having had kids involved or being a coach, it's a commitment. That's for sure. I mean, like anything worthwhile, though, right? That's, that's, yeah. that's part of the, the beauty of that one that I've been able to kind of witness firsthand with my youngest son. But, you know, that getting up early practices, committing to a team, you know, putting forth that, that effort, you know, understanding that shared experience. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah, those are wonderful life lessons for kids and for parents. You know, there's nothing more exciting than seeing your, your child having fun and laughing. 100%. No question. No question. Beyond road trip and bus trip, my goodness, but we won't go into that. That's for another podcast. So, <laughs> Bill. For our, our audience, these are people who typically may work in the space of rehabilitation. Many of them may be kind of researchers in that space, usually in, in physical medicine and rehabilitation. These can also be individuals that are very curious about brain and spine health. And as I mentioned, I think this episode is really going to help us dig a little bit deeper into what's going on in terms of research and practice in both brain and spine health. So for our listeners today, why don't you just give a little bit of an introduction as to what some of your perspective and, and main messages in the world of brain health? And maybe we could start with what got you interested in it. Thank you for that. And I obviously in my role with the Spinal Cord Institute, the brain is is central to all of that, really. And and I remember Max Senator used to be head of the Center for Brain Health at yeah. UBC, who who's, yeah. who would say, you know, the brain runs from the front of the eyes to the bottom of the back. And we have we've we've sort of added these arbitrary distinctions or or divisions between the you know the eyes, the brain, uh, and the back, but really it's part of the same system. And so when uh, someone experiences a brain injury or a back injury, a serious one, many of the same mechanisms are occurring. You you get a, a traumatic injury, let's say, and then then there's an inflammation cascade that follows from it. So there's a lot of similarities between the two. And I guess my first personal experience really with brain injury was, was as, actually as a hockey coach 20 years ago, and I uh, was coaching a team in Vancouver that uh, traveled around. It was a, a midget, midget is what they used to call it, ages 15 to 17. And we had a game in Squamish, and two of the boys got hurt and had to go to the hospital with suspected concussions. So I remember picking them up from Squamish Hospital after the game to take them home. And I had four or five boys that year who sustained concussions. And I thought, wow, this is this is too many. This is way too many. This is this is out of proportion with what my experience had been playing. And I thought, gosh, you know, what's going on here? And this, of course, was in the presence of body checking. Mm -hmm. So this started to 
you know, developed some questions for me about what is, you know, what's happening on a larger scale here? And is this a pattern that goes beyond just my experience? And when I took the role with the Institute, I started talking with Dr. Charles Tatter, who is a kind of a, the, the godfather of brain injury in this country, the only person who is a, both a mem- member of the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame and the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame. And I said, Charles, you know, this is what I'm seeing. What are your thoughts on this? And he started to share his thoughts on the effect of body checking in hockey on brain injury and other forms of injury. And there's been some research done by Carolyn Emery at University of Calgary that showed there's a three times increase elevated risk with body checking. So that, that was sort of where the the two started to come together for me because it's not just the head injuries, it's back injuries and and the like that kids are affected by. So this sort of brought some of that together. And when there's research that has been done, whether it's in back injury, uh, related to injuries in the spine or to, to the head, when there's research that has been developed, it's not a guarantee that that research is going to be implemented. And this is one of the big challenges and body checking is probably a classic knowledge translation problem where there is evidence that, you know, this is not necessarily the best thing to be doing with kids, especially if you're giving consent to minors who, who, who are not really getting a fully informed consent to do this. So pushing and pulling with Hockey Canada over a period of time on this and, and the, the governance challenges that you read about in the newspaper today are, were in evidence in that area as well. So there's, to me, a common pattern there. However, you know, when we when we look at our own institute, praxis is a Greek word. It means moving knowledge into practice. And sometimes that's harder than it is to do the original research because there are so many factors that have to be considered when you're implementing knowledge. In my past, in my young naivety, I just thought, you know, if you've done an article and then I identified this new knowledge and and that, you know, suggests you shouldn't do this and you should do that, that, you know, you, you just provide it to the people in the general public and, and that, that change will occur. It doesn't work that way. It's sometimes very, very difficult to, to get new knowledge into, into use. And so that is really a, at the heart of, of what we're trying to do that's unique in our institute is, is to move the knowledge along. We don't do the foundational basic science research. We do the translational research, which means things like clinical trials in human research so that we're actually trialing it and getting it into implementation so that it does have an impact. For us, an article, a publication, it's great. It's not an outcome, it's an output. And, And it's a lead indicator that you may have an opportunity to affect change. But until that change is actually been made, you're not going to get the outcome that you're really pursuing. And so really, I think of Praxis Institute Institute's a noun. Praxis is is like a verb, you know. You, and you want to you want to move the knowledge into into. You want to move the noun into use, kind of thing. It's kind of the the idea behind it. And and it, you know, it's it's not an easy thing to do. It's easy to say, but one of the key components to doing that, to achieving that, I don't care whether it's in spinal cord injury or brain injury or or whatever health condition you're you're attacking. If you want to accelerate the progress. You need to get the people who are affected by that condition directly involved. And that, I think, if, if you were to ask me, what's the unique aspect of Praxis? What would be different from Praxis and maybe some other organizations out there? It's really that we are involving people with spinal cord injury early on in everything that we're trying to do, whether it's the, the research projects, not just as subjects, but as co-creators of the study itself. So that, that, you know, there's a prospect at the end of the study that that outputs or the, the, out, the, the outputs can be turned into an outcome. And if you're not asking the right questions, or if you're, if you're testing a commercial device that people don't want to use, you're not going to have the kind of outcome that you're hoping for. And that is really central to, to our model. You know, we're called an institute, but really we're a network. We're, we, we bring together groups across the country that participate in our National Spinal Cord Injury uh, Registry Network, the 31 sites, and then we have some internationally. That we, we wrap these smart people around the, the platform, the data platforms, to bring together the knowledge in a, in a fashion that, that can be used to move the needle on not just paralysis, but you know almost three dozen secondary complications, move the needle and accelerate the progress faster. 
uh, you know, uh, we we looked at different models and other health conditions and to, to try and figure out what what are the success factors in, in moving the progress faster. And we noticed that in cancer, for example, there are a lot of successful trials. There's a lot of cancers now that are curable that, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago were not. They've had incredible success in improving outcomes. It's amazing. And, there, and now with these new mRNA vaccines that are being developed, there's, it's, it's going to move even faster because they're going to be able to vaccinate against certain kinds of cancers after they sequence the DNA of the tumors. It's, it's amazing the, the things that we're going to see in the next few years. And how, you know, how can we apply those success factors to, to, to work that we do so that uh, we move it along faster? So we looked at cancer, and, and there's a doctor who wrote this incredible article on translational medicine a few years ago, Francesco Maricola, originally from Italy, but working in the U.S. And, and really one of the key components that we were missing that needs to change in our field is that we do not understand the underlying pathophysiology of spinal cord injury well enough to really successfully choose what is going to be a, a drug that will work to, you know, to, to cure paralysis or, or even the stem cell line. Because if you don't understand the problem fully, then you cannot, you cannot choose the solution. Getting agreement on the problem is part of the problem. You know, and that's where networks come, come into play. And that's where the involvement of people with spinal cord injury really matters because they're the ones who are experiencing these problems. They need to be central to articulating what the needs are. Bill, I absolutely, just for one sec there, I love what you said there. You covered a, a lot. And it was amazing. And for our listeners, I want you to really hone in on what Bill was saying about that concept of translation. Because having been involved in some ways, you know, with the Faculty of Medicine at UBC, doing some pilot study work, well, I mean, helping to inform some of the questions, and then obviously the good people at UBC doing what they do. But the concept is that, okay, you have a question, and the research shows something right? We don't always know what that is necessarily going to be when we translate it into practice. But what Bill's hitting on, it's so important in the world that we've probably never heard in public media, the term clinical trial as much as we have <laughs> recently over the past few years. So as Bill's talking about the problem, I think you did such a good job explaining it that, okay, we can do good research in the lab and that's great. And that happens all the time when you talk about cancer, 100%, right? But then how do we inform it and translate it into practice so that we can start to make it more accessible as an option for the community in need of that sort of an outcome? So I think that was just, thank you for that. Well, it, it, it's, a, it's a thing that, you know, when, when uh, in the early days of the Institute, there was an approach to research, which was a call for proposals and external peer review, which is great. The projects were all methodologically sound that got funded. That's mm -hmm. wonderful. What was missing was this lens of relevancy and the a relevancy framework to determine, you know, what are, what's the key research problems that you want to focus on? And that has to be informed by people who actually are affected by the condition. And so what people who have spinal, suffered a spinal cord injury experience in after their injury, it, uh, it evolves over time and their priorities change, you know, in that first year post-injury the focus often on the basis of the research is that people want to walk again. That's their top priority. After about a right. year, the, then it shifts a little bit to some of the secondary complications that, that are impediments to them going back to, to live an active life and, uh, you know, perhaps going back to work if they were working before and, and fully participating in other ways, you know, whether it's a pressure injury or a bladder infection or neuropathic pain. These are things that are not unique to spinal cord injury, but if you've had one, the likelihood that you're going to suffer one of these is quite high. This is one of the principles we also apply in our commercialization program because we we really see that, you know, in order to, for some of this knowledge, this innovation to get into use, it, sometimes it needs to com be commercialized. It's, it's not going to be implemented in the healthcare system. It needs to be available in the community. It's not going to be solely available in a hospital and somebody has to pay for it. So in order to get it developed and get it to market so people can actually use it, you, you've got to be able to make it commercially viable. And so 
we have an incubate and accelerate program, which assists new companies in early stage in, in crossing those valleys of, of death, you know, from bench to bedside and then from bedside to worldwide, meaning, you know, getting it out into the commercial world. And one way to do that, to ensure that that has a chance of success is that the problems that these solutions, these kind of early stage companies address, have to address a broad enough range of problems or big enough problems that they're commercially viable. So, you know, th- this is one of the assists in our field where, you know, whether it's pain or bladder infections or pressure injuries, for example, those are fairly ubiquitous in the population. So there's a larger economic denominator. So you can solve the SAI problem, but you can also solve a lot of other people's problems. And that's how, what enables it to be commercially viable and right. to be able to, 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 uh, to be a success. And so that's one of the criteria we have when companies are selected is that they've got to solve a broad enough or large enough problem that it's a commercially viable enterprise in order to, to be successful. And, and again, we are a team that have lived experience get involved with the companies at the very early stage. And the feedback we get is the companies love that because sometimes they, they adjust what they're doing significantly or throw the strategy in the wood stove and, and start anew because they've gotten some insights that they never anticipated or never thought of. Mm-hmm. And it's fundamentally altered their business model, which is a good thing because of greater likelihood of success. It's a great thing. I love that model. It reminds me of one of my mentors, Howard Eaton, when we were starting these, working at these schools. And I remember we were hiring new teachers and Howard's a pretty innovative guy. And he's like, you know what? We need a student on each hiring committee. And, <laughs> and the students, they picked them pretty much perfectly. Some of our staff, we made errors, <laughs> but the, the kids kind of got it. Because again, that same model, but they understand better than any what, what, oh, what, yeah. is, what is needed. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's a consultative model, but it's also recognition and showing respect to the people who are experiencing those conditions. And whether they have academic credentials or not is really secondary. It's, you know, what is their real live lived experience and and how it's really key to to a long-term success in terms of an outcome you know there's a lot of similarities between the challenges that we face in spinal cord injury and and stroke for example i use the analogy of cancer because they in cancer of course you've got a if you resect a tumor you've got this tissue to work with that you can experiment with, that you can you can analyze, and you can gather a great deal of data from that. With stroke and spinal cord injury, there isn't anything quite the same. You know, you're not removing a tumor. You can't do a sequencing, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So you, you need to be able to, in order to fully understand the problem, you need more data. How are you going to get that data? You know, to help inform what you're doing so that so that you don't go into a clinical trial or uh, of a stem cell or a, or a drug with only one peer-reviewed article prior to that as preclinical evaluation. That's a big bet. When you're talking about drug trials that cost hundreds of millions of dollars, you, you got to be pretty sure that you got a good chance of success. And, and unless you've got data points to analyze and understand, that's going to be pretty tough. So, you know, cancer has that, and, and they've done a very good job of, of gathering data around that and studying it. Spinal cord injury, well, what do we got? Well, actually, we this is one of the things we're attaching to our, our registry is images now. Images, biomarkers in cerebral spinal fluid, some of the biomarkers from tissue as well, to, to be able to analyze in a almost like a big data format where you bring these variables together with machine learning to better understand what the what the prognosis is and what therapies might work better so that we we can be more successful in applying the therapies in our prognosis for for people at the outset what's going to work what's not you know this is a really key thing and i think this is where machine learning kicks in not only for us but others as well whether it's a stroke or even in, in brain injury Oftentimes, not all the time, but sometimes a brain injury will occur at the same time that spinal cord injury will occur, whether it's a car accident or a traumatic accident. Sometimes the the paralysis is diagnosed first, and it's not until later that it's understood that there was actually a brain injury incurred as well. 
So there's sometimes the the circumstances there's overlap between a brain injury and spinal cord injury. The inflammation cascade that follows after a traumatic injury has similar a similar pattern from a basic science point of view. So, so presumably some of the solutions that we would develop would also have overlapping applicability, whether it's brain or spine. And then and thirdly, when it comes to post-injury to, to the rehabilitation phase, many of the same exercise rehabilitation that's utilized for brain injury is, is also appropriate for spine. We go to the same locations in Vancouver, it's GF strong. So whether you yeah. had a stroke, a brain injury, a spinal cord injury, they're all co-located there and, and there's overlap in, in, the, in some of the rehab uh, that, that is done. So there's a lot of similarity between the two. As well, I think there, there's uh, technologies that, that have overlap. There's, there's some very exciting things going on with technology, which is slightly less risky than things that are systemic like stem cells and, and drugs, where yeah. there's not only the prospect of good, but there's also the risk of something happening that you don't understand with a new drug or a stem cell. And this is one of the differences between technology. Technology isn't always systemic. So you read now about these new companies that are emerging, developing technology for brain-computer interface, for example. I, I was just about to, I mean, this is, so quick question for you on that, because this is a topic that comes up frequently in our, I'm sure both of our world. So when you think about somebody who's on a rehab journey, an individual that's on their rehabilitation uh, journey following injury, right? And you hear about, you know, technologies that are out there. I mean, even with some of the, the computer interface technology, the, the stuff Musk is doing. And yeah. if we're going down that road, what do you think about the risk that that could potentially have on behavior and resilience? Because I think it's wonderful. I think it's really interesting. I think it's, I think, I'm curious. But I'm also, uh, one of the folks we had on, uh, James Durham, he's a big kind of uh, brain injury advocate and support uh, person, great, great human. But his whole thing around the rehab journey is in the inpatient time. I mean, of course, we need to do everything that we can to get the uh, proper surgery, whether that's you know, craniotomy, whether that's you know, fusion, whatever that may be in that acute uh, time. And as we move to post or outpatient to post acute, we also need to understand what the rehab goals of that individual are and support them with the appropriate you know, therapies to help us try to engage in a way that may lead to more meaningful function that could move us more towards those goals which will impact the quality of life of the individual. So when I think about the curiosity, the question I have is, how do you think about those computer interface technologies and really seemingly kind of the faster way to get to the outcome versus the more traditional way? Well, that's a really good question. I guess the easy answer is we need to do both. But the, yeah. the uh, but the you know it's uh, to have a plurality of solutions you're pursuing is a form of diversification of risk, right? And and so to be able to pursue them with with multiple perspectives, hopefully, will lead us to some solutions that are, that work well in a, in a, on a faster timeline. You know, I looked at the technologies and I, I think there's a lot of hype around Neuralink, of course, which is the Elon Musk company. And there's other companies that are doing really interesting things like Synchron, which is, is actually, I think, they've got a stent, something called Stent Road, which is like a stent in, in the brain, mm -hmm. sends signals. They've actually done some, uh, enrolled the first person in a trial, I, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it was founded out of Melbourne, Australia, and, and then moved to the U.S., Common challenge for Australians, Canadians, you know, we, we were great at developing the science, but, you know, so much capital in the United States, it just, there's this great draw to the U.S. to commercialize some of these things when you need a lot of money. When you consider 40% of the world's venture capitalism in California, it's, it's hard to avoid that at some stage. But these are all incredible technologies that are very much in their infancy, but you can see where it's headed. To what degree that would, uh, hopefully, that, that won't um, slow down any of the other innovation in other areas that could also be equally as effective, but in different ways. Again, you know, those are technologies that are not systemic. So the risks, I, on the basis of what I've, I've read so far, 
the risks are manageable there. They're, they're, they have a pretty good sense of what those risks are. Mm-hmm. You know, when you come to stem cells, which ha- apparently have a great deal of potential, it's a different matter because they don't understand the, the underlying mechanism of action that's not well understood. So you're, you're introducing cells um, into the body in a, in a manner where you, you're not 100% sure exactly what's going to happen. And there are incidences where there have been tumors develop and, and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And again, it's systemic. So the, the level of risk is much higher from that point of view. And, and drugs, too, where you can have side effects that can be worse than the condition it is that you're trying to, to treat. So what you don't want to do with any technology is introduce more risk than, right. um, than reward. And in order to do that, you need to understand the, the underlying pathophysiology of the condition, but also you know, what the mechanism of action is, uh, whether it's the stem cell or the drug that you're, that you're introducing. So, you know, I think the, there's no shortcuts for drugs and stem cells with technology, you know, which is often external and, and is non-systemic. I think there's probably a shorter path to some success there in the sense that uh, there'll be things that that will be developed that will be in the form of assistive devices that will change people's lives without curing the condition, but as workarounds that will make a difference in their ability to participate in their mobility. And, you know, I think of exoskeletons, which are also being developed all over the world. We've got a a terrific one locally company that's called Human Emotion Robotics. It's out of Simon Fraser University, which we know well. And it has a, they've developed a fantastic technology and there are competitors globally as well. But that's a technology that's coming. It's, you know, it's working now. It'll be refined. It'll be introduced in the workplace. It'll be introduced for people with mobility impairment, whether they have spinal cord injury or stroke or whatever the case may be for the elderly, perhaps as well. That's coming quickly and it's moving move beyond the research piece to to actual functional introduction into into people's lives would you ever have imagined when you were coaching hockey in squamish and worried about these kids with these concussions that here you would be running this organization that's doing this work trying to better help to translate complex research questions into clinical practice (laughs) (laughs) who knew who knew (laughs) What, how exciting. I mean, it's yeah. Just, uh, oh it my really, God. We're, in, we're entering this phase of, and the, you know, this is, uh, and I read this book a bunch of years ago called the meaning of the 21st century by James Martin. And he, he wrote the wired society back in 1978, the most prolific writer in the world has written. He, he wrote, he's passed away now, but he wrote over a hundred books in his career. He was just an incredible system design engineer and the whole thing. Mm. And the last book that he wrote, 2006, was called Meaning of the 21st Century. I was fortunate enough to meet him. I was visiting my sister in Bermuda, and she, she knew him. He lived in Bermuda, which is really a collection of about 150 islands. He bought this four-acre island and had rehabilitated. No one had ever lived on it before, and he did his writing there. And, and he talked about something he called the singularity. And I'd never really heard of that before. I didn't know what it meant. And in the way he described it, he said, you know, around 2020, in the 2020s, he said, computers are going to start to do the programming where previously people did programming. And then the pace of change is going to accelerate in ways that we can't even imagine. And the biggest challenge for the human race is going to be adapting to change. And I thought, wow. And, you know, in his book, The Wired Society, he predicted all of this wireless technology that we that we have now are living with, you know, what is it, 40 plus years ago. Wow. So, you know, it's, uh, it was very interesting to to hear his perspective. He'd gone around the world, as he described it, and interviewed the 100 smartest people that he knew. And, he, and then he gave, uh, gave 60 million pounds to Oxford to create an institute in his name, like a school of global global issues and stuff like that and he passed away but he you know that that legacy lives on but it, it's a we live in a period where you know the it's almost logarithmic where the change is going to start to you know increase and accelerate a lot of that'll be wonderful and it will inform all these solutions for people who've had chronic conditions acute conditions that we can't 
here, but it also afford us with a lot of other challenges as well, ethical ones that we'll have to manage in ways that we've never anticipated. Is there any other influence? And we'll make sure that's in the show notes, everybody, so you'll be able to click it. We'll, we'll make sure that that's noted in there. Is there any other influences that you'd like to share that really help to frame some of your perspective, maybe some of your even resilience in this work that, that have helped you? They, these could be people, these could be books, these could be well, professors, family. Yeah, I, I think for sure. I think the certainly the people that we work with and that we are there to serve. Some of them have almost all of them, but the, they've been incredibly resilient in terms of, of what they've they've been faced with physically, emotionally, and that that provides a compass. It's, it's why we exist. Our, our underlying philosophy is really inclusivity. It's trying to bring people to a place where they can fully participate and that they can return to doing the things that really are meaningful to them without the kind of impediments or, or hindrances and sometimes the pain that's associated with those injuries. Pain can be, as, as we know, it's, it's the underlying problem that we have with the opioid crisis is not our inability to control pain, which has had yep. massive consequences for society. You know, it has has impact on mental health. It has the impact on the ability of people's ability to do the things that bring them joy, to to return to work if they wish to do that or to work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these are fundamentally we existed to 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 support inclusivity in its broadest sense, and and either you're inclusive or you're not. You know, and and that means everybody. One hundred percent, and and that's actually something that you know motivates me every day as well is providing options for people to regain or gain certain capacities that they would like to try to move toward. And exactly. a part of what really remains a huge motivator for me, like you. Is the people for which we've had almost now it's like responsibility to serve. <laughs> like it's not just a motivation yeah. to serve. Now that we've done some of this, been a part of doing some of this research, and now we've seen enough clinical, we're kind of like, oh my goodness! Like, sadly, many of these sorts of tools aren't yet really available. So, how do we find ways to at least make sure that that option is available, whether they choose to utilize it or not? That's up to them, yeah. and that's their informed consent. Wonderful, but that it's a huge motivator for me. And I love how you kind of hit on that topic so well, because it's an area that I am constantly looking to expand my growth and communication with other people about. When you think about cancer, sadly, a very common thing. But again, I have such great hope for the future in that one as well, because clinical trials are working for the most part. Is the science being translated as well as it maybe could be? No, but are they working on it? Is the model getting better year over year? Yes. I believe. Well, I mean, here locally, I believe for the most part, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a wonderful thing because, it, and it's so tangible, it's so accountable. We can see the data. We can say, okay, actually, we're now getting pet technology over in Victoria finally, because a certain segment of the population would not be able to or not choose to come over to Vancouver in order to get the proper diagnosis for staging to help us to better understand how to go about treating a particular form of leukemia, as an example. And so we're seeing that come, which is which is a wonderful thing, because it's ultimately giving people more informed choice. And thankfully, we're in a part of the world where we're trying hard, I think, to make some of these sorts of things as accessible as we can. And I, that's why I applaud your work because you're doing that at a different scale, which is really cool. You know, it's doing it from a corporate organizational scale and then deploying it out to communities. Yeah. Well, so I, that's wonderful. You, you've, you've hit on something that I think is really, really critical. And that is, is really you talk about also accessibility to therapies, too. And there's great variation in our country. We've got a big country with this thin line of population just above the 49th, you know. And, you know, part of our broader strategies and, and motivation for to do, address some of the things that you, you just touched on is a, you know, national SCI care strategy, which, which you know, underlying that is the notion that no matter where you live in the country, you should have, you should have access to to the kind of support that you need to to get healthy again, and also to be able to 
you know, rehab and, and, and so on, whether, whether it's spinal cord injury and, or more broadly speaking, brain injury. And, and we know, we know that, you know, the cost of spinal cord injury is about for an individual society annual is about 2.7 billion a year in Canada, the cost to the individual. And by that, I mean, the impact on them is catastrophic oh. not only for themselves, but for, you know, also for their family, because it's not just the individual who gets spinal cord injury, it's the people who care about them. It, it's a big deal. When you look at brain injury, which is far more ubiquitous than, far more prevalent than, than people realize, the data for that is, is captured in hospital when someone goes to a hospital for, you know, because they've had a head injury, or sometimes they go to the doctor's office, sometimes they don't go anywhere at all. And those data is one of the things that needs to change is those data sets that do exist out there in different pockets need to be brought together because concussion traumatic brain injury is a major, major public health issue concern in Canada. And it's only really been over the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years that, that it's started to get some of the attention that it, that it needs to get in order for us to to make the policy changes in society to prevent it from occurring as often as it does, but also to make sure that there are therapies being developed that, that help people through that phase. And, you know, body checking is just one example of a, a rule that could change yeah. that, would re, that would reduce the number of injuries by thousands. Some of those, uh, you know, we have some people in our orbit that have had that were injured, you know, spinal cord injury playing hockey. You know, one of those is too many. If you can tweak the rules in a way that allows the kids to still have fun, develop the skills, but reduce the, the risk that's profile the, significantly. That's why I applaud Bryden for working towards trying to change the game a little bit, right? Like, I think it's I think it's a good thing, you know? And you talk to any of the people, you know, sadly or fortunately, I think fortunately, but ultimately, sadly, I've had the opportunity to work with people who have played in the NHL and who've had significant history of brain injury and are extremely concerned about the research coming out on the long-term potential uh, impact of these activities. And when you ask them about the sport, they say, when's hockey at its best? You're like, have you ever watched like Quebec major junior hockey in the playoffs? It's open ice. It's fast pass. Are there, is there anybody? No. Are there many cheap shots? No. It's open, freewheeling, wonderful hockey. So I don't think we, we don't need this, you know, and, and I, I'm with you like a hundred percent. There are some operational things, some strategic things that we can do to eliminate. There's always going to be, you know, the possibility, of course, can never do that, but yeah. we, we can seriously reduce it. And I think we need to. Like, yeah. especially, with, especially with pediatrics. Like, we have oh, a responsibility yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, it's not that hard. It's not that complicated. We get, and it doesn't mean you fundamentally change the game. You're just making it safer. You know, when I coached kids 15 to 17, there was massive differences in their size in that age. They'd collapse those age groups. It was crazy. I'd had, to, you know, one boy is 6'2 and 190 pounds. I think another one is 5'6 and 125 pounds on the same team. You know, so you can understand that we want to preserve the fun and the, and the integrity of the game. You can do that by making some smart moves around it to set the kids up for success and protect them. So, but they, Bill, they Bill, here's the thing. Here's the rub. Sometimes it takes a lot of courage to do that. You know, I can remember pulling a kid from play, which Hockey Canada. I applaud Hockey Canada and actually USA Hockey's done a pretty great job too for the guidelines that are to be followed by any sort of official on a team, whether it's a safety person, whether it's the manager, the coach, the assistant coach, you know, any six, any suspected concussion, um, objective, like rapid acceleration, deceleration. Okay. Assess. And I remember pulling one, one player aside. I was a bit concerned, wonderful skater, great player, pulled them aside. Even our head coach was like, why, what are you doing? I'm like, okay. Pulled them aside, pulled them from play. The dad was so mad at me because grandpa was there watching. And I'm like, these are the things. No, I'm not saying I'm great. I'm just saying I, I don't see enough of it out there but when there was suspected. And, and it's something we all have to do until it becomes just what we do. You know, it starts with that first step until it becomes what we do because you've seen and I've seen too much of the other side of it. 
way too much of it. Because if you enable the behavior, then it just becomes yeah. what well, it, it becomes, was. And we're trying to move becomes, out of that. It becomes part of the culture. And, and you know, sometimes you know, you, you, it's the old dilemma. Do you change attitudes to change behavior or do you change the behavior and then the attitudes will follow? Sometimes you can change the attitudes and the behaviors will change. Sometimes it doesn't happen. And, you know, when I think about things like the, in, in my lifetime that have changed where there wasn't always universal public support, you've got things like seatbelts, the introduction of seatbelts. There's a lot of people who didn't want to wear seatbelts when they were introduced. That's how old I am. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then and then uh, you had airbags that developed and nobody was in, in, you know going to get in the way of that. But you had not, uh, smoking policies that changed, you know, where non-smoking areas were introduced and then it, then it grew and grew and grew. And there were that was very unpopular with some sector of the population. But I don't think anybody would roll back any of those things. They wouldn't contemplate that. It's been accepted now. It's not part of the culture. And people have moved on that threshold, that status quo of what you will accept has changed. And, and sometimes you just have to make the, the best decision on the basis of the evidence and hope that people will get on board. And I think with whether it's brain injury, spinal cord injury, you need the data. Information is power. And I think to be able to link these databases, you know, related to brain injury, for example, where people go to their doctor's office or the emergency department or, or sometimes they're not reported or they go to allied health professional to have treatments. If we could link those databases, we can, we can then understand what the, not only the nature and the scope of the problem of brain injury is, we can also determine how it's happening. And you can mitigate against those circumstances with public policy changes that could reduce it dramatically at no cost to anyone. In fact, it would save us all a lot of misery and also a lot of cost in the health system. So, you know, there's yeah. things that it's, it's uh, those kinds of things. That's why registries are important is that you can aggregate those experiences together to, to develop a full picture of what the problem is and you really understand the problem. And then you can come up with solutions that actually work. And it takes, I mean, it takes conversations like these, though. The thing is, I'm optimistic. I actually think it is happening. I think a lot of good is already happening. Yes, yeah, so I would agree. With, 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 with your work, you know, there's a lot of great organizations out there doing really innovative, great things to help to better assess and then also treat these conditions that have previously been extremely hard to assess and then treat. So, like... We have to recognize we're in a pretty good spot here. A lot of good is happening. I'm very optimistic about the future. Yeah, I, I am too. And if you, you know, you look at these technologies that are being developed now, and the and the computer capability, quantum computing is about to. We had a, a conversation recently with the Institute for Quantum Computing at University of Waterloo. Canada has plays a an outsized role in the development of quantum computing. We've mm -hmm. got companies locally here. D-Wave being one of them, that are playing a, a huge role in providing leadership internationally. Canada's got a great deal of capacity and capability in these areas. And it, quantum computing is going to revolutionize clinical trials. You know, yeah. it's going to be able to shorten them, make them safer, make them more predictable, and help us move that needle on a whole bunch of health conditions much faster than, than in the past. And, and uh, it's also going to create other challenges around cybersecurity. But yeah, those are yeah. things that, that are there anyway, and they need to be solved. No, they do. They do. And I guess one, you know, I, I'm with you on the future. I think we're, I think it's really exciting. And I think that one area I want to try to understand a little bit better for, from your perspective, and not just in practice, but in the world of kind of brain health in general, you know, is there one or two things that are frustrating to you that are making it challenging for you that you want to really see, see change? Yeah, you know, it's a um, that's a good question. I, I think the you know the the approach we've tried to take with the institute, uh, you know, our our mission actually incorporates this is to try and in, incentivize and support collaboration, and we've tried to do that with we have the various partner sites across Canada. There's thirty odd there. We have some internationally as well. And, and to be able to link these really brilliant minds who are motivated, passionate about what they're doing to data 
to, you know, to, to the registry databases. We've got 10,000 people in the registry now is a really important success factor. It's one of the things that has made cancer so successful. And we've tried to follow their lead in terms mm-hmm. of what works well. I'd like to see that grow. And of course, I think it's it's like sort of a given, but you know, further investment in in the neurosciences area in the foundational research as well. Canada is very strong in these areas, and then of course, the commercializing some of those innovative ideas. This Canada is really making progress there, but scaling is always a challenge. Often, there's a temptation to go to the U.S. or or sale of company. So. We face those challenges with other countries like Australia as well, where, you know, anybody but the United States is going to be smaller in terms of investment. Um, Although Israel is very successful and they've had a lot of IPOs on NASDAQ. uh, They've been very, very successful at doing that by looking globally. And and that's that's a big part of why we have international partners is we see that as an accelerant to, you know, not only the development of innovation, but getting it translated is by by doing that one of the challenges in spinal cord injury is having timely enrollment of patients in trials and one of the reasons for that is that you know you've got to have comparable study and control groups and each injury is so uniquely different and so you need a lot of people to choose from in order to make those comparable groups and to do that in a timely way is sometimes challenging and so uh, that again is another reason why the registry is developed is to is to be able to move clinical trials along faster. It's time is money. And, yeah. and, and ultimately to do a trial on a drug trial or a stem cell trial, these are very expensive propositions. We're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars before they're completed. And so, you know, it's it's not a it's something that you need to have a you, you need to have a really strong preclinical evaluation before you go into trial and that costs money and and that has to be done. There's no shortcuts. It's got to be done with good science. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing. These are all, you know, problems worth solving. And I think by employing the model that you're talking about where you have not only the really great scientists, the other people who are good about operations and commercialization, but then, you know, the individual who is the person who's gone through the trauma, a part of the process, I think it's really built to win. Uh, in that way. So, you know, kudos to you and the team for doing it the way that you're doing it. You know, I think it's, it, it's obviously very, very important work that you're doing. It's very much needed. Again, another reason for optimism is because organizations like yours are out there trying to help tie research with, with commercialization. And I think it's, I think it's awesome. <laughs> so, you know, I want to thank you so, so much for sharing a little bit of your wisdom and time and motivation. That's the part for me. I'm always curious, but motivates people, what got them going, what keeps them going, right? And, you know, I just want to thank you for that. For our listeners here, they've heard this, okay? They Maybe they run a company, maybe they're individuals, maybe they're spinal cord survivors of spinal cord injury and are looking to participate and get and support. How do people get a hold of you? How do they support the work? First of all, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed the discussion. If they'd like more info, please visit our website. It's praxisinstitute.org. And you can sign up for our social media on Twitter, Facebook, and, and also LinkedIn so that our team produces some excellent updates and publications on, on what's happening and what's, and what's going to be happening. We're very fortunate here in Canada to have a model that, that is um, based on collaboration. And, you know, our job is to link these smart people together domestically, but, but also with the international ones. We've got fantastic neuroscience in Canada. Can't say enough good about that, both here in Vancouver and Toronto and elsewhere. It's really world-class and we've got some of the best universities. So we're well-situated and then you've alluded to it earlier. There's a, you know, with that capability comes the responsibility to do something with it. You know, it's not good enough just to to publish. You've got to make a difference. Yeah, and that, that, that's a big part of what you're, you and your team are doing. And you know, maybe we'll do this again on another another topic when we're when we're continuing to kind of further this conversation. My hope is that for those of you that are listening, there you're you're kind of wondering, you know, this is a complex problem. How do I do anything about it? Well, you you do something about it. Okay, <laughs> you get involved. You make that call. You search that article. 
you call that doctor, whomever it might be, you call that business and you get started and you never know where that might land you. So, you know, I, I know, I know that's part of what's motivated Bill. That's part of what obviously motivates me and, and so many people that are doing such remarkable things in this work, whether they're researchers or, or clinical people or, or just really engaged stakeholders. So thank you again for listening. Please share this conversation with Bill within your networks. If it hit home for you, please, please, more people need to know about this, this work that he's doing. Thank you again for, for sharing it. My, my pleasure, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for continuing to listen to the Brain Mastery podcast. We're super grateful for the community of supporters of this podcast. Again, this podcast was designed with an intention and an objective, and that was to share stories of rehabilitation, of recovery from brain injury, to really interview some of the leaders out there to provide more hope to community members. So thank you again for all of the support with that. If this episode resonated for you and had value for you, we just ask, please download and share it. Please also, if you wouldn't mind, rate the podcast. Those ratings really matter and help us to spread the message. If you're a clinical provider out there, meaning a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, or somebody who just works with people with brain injury and want to learn more about the BEARS platform, we've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to do so. Just go to www.abiwellness.com to learn more about how to get involved. Uh, training is very accessible and we've tried to make it very, very easy for people to get access to this neurorehabilitation platform. Thank you again for your support and we'll see you on the next episode. The statements made regarding the Bears platform and ABI Wellness have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of the Bears platform has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. The Bears platform is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All information presented here is not meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from healthcare practitioners. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requires this notice.